4. We're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Our verses are going to be verses 17 to 24. But before we start, why don't we pray? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how wonderful it is to know that your grace is still working in us. I was just uh, dwelling upon that song. O great God in highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Conquer. What is it? Conquer. Occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice nor sin remain that resists your holy war. We pray, Father, that this morning for the Christian that your glory and your magnitude and your wonder and the beauty of Christ would draw us to live lives that are in conformance with his will. And we pray, Father, we would hate our sin. And if there are those here who do not know you, we pray that you would turn their hearts to you, that they would see the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Help us to hear your word this morning. Help us to apply your word, to live your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, says Levi. We have a, uh, uh, sometimes um, when we have folks over, a lot of times they like to hear little mis- uh, missionary stories. And we have, when you're out on the field, there's some crazy things that happen. And it's not something that you always, comes up in conversation because it's not really normal here in life. But uh, when my wife, I just have a story, when my wife was first interested in missions, she uh, did her first missions trip to Papua New Guinea. And uh, so she spent a lot of time, she was there learning how they do their work. Uh, she visited the language labs and everything like that. It was quite a wonderful time there in the compound. But what was interesting is they broke the team up and they had to go into these really tiny kind of two-prop planes, right, where they would get in the planes, and they had to go really, really light because these planes couldn't carry a lot of weight. And what they would do is they would take them to remote uh, outreaches so that they could see different tribes of folks who have come to Christ. And so Jeanette and Eileen uh, Bagalso, who many of you know, they were sent out, and they went to different spots, and as Jeanette was there, she, it was very, very, very Stone Age, basically. They had huts, but they all professed Christ. And so what they did for them was they had a big kind of a luau thing. They had a big party where they invited everyone. And so all of the older folks were there, the younger folks were there, and the, whole, and the team that was with Jeanette was there. Now, something about Papua New Guinea, if you don't know, is before the missionaries went to Papua New Guinea, uh, they were always, different tribes were always fighting each other. And not just fighting each other. The ideal of the tribes was to fight and kill your enemy and then eat them. They were cannibals. And in fact, if you read some of the books, and I want to encourage not because of the gross factor, but I want to encourage some of you uh, young folks and your older folks, if you guys want to read something, this is far better than fiction. Here's a title, Lords of the Earth, if you want to write that down, by Don Richardson. It's a great book um, about missionaries. Reality is more interesting than fiction of what people actually did for Christ. And so... uh, if you want to read some of the book, you could get a little bit of a context. But what Jeanette saw there was she saw, see, and, and cannibalism ended when Christianity was there. But there were still some ex-cannibals. Okay. The older folks were still, they were ex-cannibals. They were saved. Imagine sitting there next to someone who ate someone else. And the way they would do it is they would deceive one another. And whoever could have the highest deception, you know, kind of 
keep your friends close and your enemies closer. They would keep their enemies closer to them and deceive them and kill them. They would marvel at how high the deception was and it was treasured. It was esteemed in their culture. Man, you really got him. That was awesome kind of thing. And these folks, some missionaries, brave missionaries by the grace of God, went into those cultures, preached Christ, and they got saved. This village got saved. So they had this party. Back to the party. Okay? So they had this party for Jeanette, right, and for the other teammates. And they were saying, they started giving testimony. And the older guys came, and they said, one of the older guys came, and he stood in front of everybody. He said, were it not for Christ, we'd be eating you right now. But now, since we're Christians, we're eating with you. <laughs> and they're laughing toward each other, thinking they're funny. And Chanette's like this. I hope he doesn't go back to his old life, right? Don't want to see a Christian struggling there, right? Right. But what Paul is talking about in this text is leaving your old life, never going back. That's the title of our, uh, of our sermon. Leaving your old life. And praise the Lord, they didn't go back into cannibalism. Why? Because Christ redeemed them, changed them, caused them to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and caused them to want to desire after him. So what can account for that kind of change? What can account for warring factions of generations of enemies over and over and over? What can account for you, O oh Christian, where your old life has changed and your new life you're pursuing? Paul says it here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Uh, excuse me, not 14 to 17, 17 to 24. I'm going to read this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. God gave this passage this morning so that you would pursue your radically different life in Christ. He gave this passage so that you would actively pursue a radically different life in Christ. There's just two main points, two big sections here as we look at the text. And the verses 17 to 19 and put here, leave your old ruined life. Leave your old ruined life. And I say this in the present tense because you notice he says here in verse 17, uh, verse 17, in the futility of the mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, which is in the ignorance of them. But you do not learn Christ in this way, 20, 21. If indeed you have heard and have been taught in him, lay aside verse 22, present tense. So in the Bible, when it talks about the old self, sometimes it talks about in the past tense. It says, you have laid aside your old self. You have put on your new self. But here it's talking in the present tense. It's saying, now lay aside and put on. When it talks about in the past tense, what it's, what it's describing is positionally. In Christ, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Remember in Colossians chapter 3. That is already done. Your position before him is set, it's fixed, it's perfect because of the 
life and death, Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about, well, what are the practical applications of this? He's saying now you are to live your life in such a way that reflects the position that you have in Christ. If in fact this is true of you, if in fact you, your position is right before God, what occurs on the heart of the Christian is now I want to be more and more of who I really am in him. Notice he says here, he says, therefore, or so this I say, um, leave your old ruined life first. I want to say this, letter A, you could say this, because it is lovingly commanded. Leave your old ruined life because it's lovingly commanded. This is an imperative that God gives to you. You're not to live this way anymore. You're not to go in those old patterns anymore. You're not to think that old way anymore. He says, do it first because it is lovingly commanded. Remember, he says, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with you, the Lord. What is astounding is he says the word, therefore. And we know in the writings of Paul, we say this, right? Uh, young folk, what do we say? If there's a therefore, you have to figure out what it's what? What it's there for, right? And so what Paul is saying is, what was, what was it prior? Just prior, he says that he's given apostles and pastors and evangelists for the building up of the church. And as you are in this matrix called the church, together, life on life, what happens is we encourage one another to live this life out. We are taught the doctrine. We are taught the truths of God. We are taught who Christ is. His magnificence, and now, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, walking together, we look at each other's lives, and we help one another. If our brother or sister is caught in sin, we help and encourage and rebuke if needed. If our brothers and sisters are doing well, we encourage. If they are rejoicing, we rejoice with them. If they are weeping, we weep with them, all in the local church. And now he says, this is how you live your lives, brothers and sisters. You're not going to live the old way anymore. You know, we need each other for this. Don't you? We need to be together for this. We need to hear each other sing for this. We need to be in each other's lives for this. We need to not have simply superficial relationships, but those that are transparent in speaking the gospel to one another so we could live out of this rut. We won't get sucked back into this old life with the YouTubes and the Vimeos and the Daily Motions and the MSNBC and the CNN and all the things that are trying and vying for your attention. God doesn't want you to live that way anymore. But he says here, I affirm together what Paul is simply saying here, this affirmation is, is, is the same word where we get witness or martyr. It is a martyreo. Paul is bearing witness that the conduct of your life absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. If you say you're a Christian, you have left this old life and you have a new life. And now Paul ties both belief and life together. He stresses that God is commanding you to live this way. Not me, not leaders. Notice he says here, I affirm together with the Lord. You don't do this. You don't put away the old life for people's expectations. You don't put away the old life for leaders' expectations, for your, even your parents' expectations. Over and above that, brothers and sisters, if you claim the name of the Lord, you're answering to God Almighty. So it is no small thing to obey Him. It is no small thing to give up that old life, to leave that old life, to stop thinking in that way, to reform your mind, to renew it in, in the image of Christ. It is no small thing. God Himself is watching. Leave your old rule in life because it is lovingly commanded, but also leave your old life because your old life 
is utterly useless. Your old life is utterly useless. And notice he says here in verse 17, That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You walk no longer in the futility of their mind. And what Paul is stating here, the Gentiles were not the people who had the covenant of God. They did not have the oracles of God. They were not in the called uh, possession of God as Israel was. They did not have the word. They were completely and utterly ignorant of the word. What Paul says is, when you are tempted to go back to the old life, to go back to your old sins, to go back to the old ways of thinking, your old outbursts of anger, your old uh, views in immorality, your old views of bitterness and grudge holding your old views of all those things that used to characterize you when you do that you're acting like an unbeliever you say you're a christian but you're living like an unbeliever and so what he says you live like you don't know god See, your life, he uses the word walk because he's stressing the idea that it is not simply what you confess. It is not simply what you say you believe. It is not simply what creed you hold to, what church you go to, what group of people are your friends he says, how do you walk? And the word walk there represents the whole sum total of the conduct of your life. Okay. The conduct of your life. In other words, your life should be so markedly different that outsiders should be able to tell. If outsiders who you rub elbows with on a daily basis cannot tell that you're a Christian, there is something wrong. If you're laughing at their dirty jokes, you understand. If you mock your parents just like the other kids do, right? If you complain on the job just like everyone on the job because your boss is horrible, right? If you live like those unbelievers and they can't tell the difference, you're walking like an unbeliever. The way you work, the way you study, the way you do everything, all must be in conformity to the excellency of who Christ is. Not because you're going to lose salvation, not because you're going to lose favor, but because of the worth and the value of who he is. And you want to strive to please him. How your kids are, how the house is ordered, how your life is, all of it must come under the reign of Christ. This is what walking with God means. And he says, if you don't live that way, people won't notice. Now, here's the question, okay? Do they know you're a Christian at work by your life? Do they know you're a Christian at school by your life, right? Because if not, you're just walking like the world. Or do you need a Christian t-shirt? You got to put on a t-shirt so people could know you're a Christian. If someone were to follow you all around your whole day, can someone surmise that you're a Christian? Or are you at work? And is your day marked with complaining and backbiting? Or students, are you, do you live differently the way you are at home than the way you are at school? Can your friends tell you are a Christian by life and speech? Or are you just going along with the flow so that they could be your friends? Do your neighbors know how you walk? 
Do they know how you walk? Why? Why is it useless? Because the Bible says in the futility of their mind. And it starts right here. It starts right here. And the word mind can incorporate both your thinking and your heart. Okay? And now Paul is going to unfold what futility of mind is. Okay? This is what characterizes unbelievers. They walk in the futility of their mind. The word futility is also translated in other places as vanity, emptiness, sometimes nonsense, nothingness, purposelessness, lacking in content. Sometimes it's translated frustration transitoriness or tempor very temporary. And the reason why we want to belabor this point, futility of mind, if what Paul is saying here, let's read the text, he says here, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then he's going to explain what futility of the mind is. And what he says here, before we move on, the working definition of the futility of the mind from what I can gather is it is the sum total of all that man could come up with to answer the questions of the meaning of life, of God, of heaven, and hell. And they all come up empty. Man by himself, if he, if he tries to answer those questions, they come up empty. Have you ever talked to unbelievers about what life is, what happens when you die, why should you exist. Here's what modern man thinks because he's so complex and so cultured. He believes he's so complex and so cultured that he's beyond what God himself says. How about this? Man knows the hows for everything. We said this before. He knows the hows. He knows how to prepare for life. He knows how to prepare for retirement. He knows how to get buried, how to do this, and how to do that. But he doesn't rightly answer the whys. Why am I put here? What, why do, does man sin? Why, does God, why did God send his son? He doesn't answer those questions correctly. Why? Because any answer he comes up with by himself, apart from Christ and apart from Scripture, comes up wrong. This is why we need the power of God to pierce through hearts when we share the gospel. Do you feel like sometimes when you talk to folks, it is absolutely impossible to share the gospel? And when you share with them, they look at you like you're foreign? Like you're wrong? Like what is wrong with that loony guy? When in actuality, they're wrong. And here's why. Here's some answers that they say. How, do you, how are you supposed to live your life? What's the meaning of life? Well, here's one of the answers. They say, as long as you're happy. You heard that? As long as you're happy, that's all that matters in life. As long as you're happy. So they base all of the meaning of life in a fleeting emotion. Okay? Right? They actually believe that. You mean to say that the wholesome total of life, the wholesome total of how you're supposed to exist, as long as you're happy, that's it. That fleeting emotion that maybe lasts for two or three minutes. Utility. Emptiness. How about this? If you believe it, it's good for you. Right? Or how about this? Well, uh, my whole purpose in living is to leave the place better than how I found it. How about that? I want to leave the place better than how I found it. Like you're renting a car and you're turning it back in clean. I'm asking, 
What does God require of you? What's going to happen when you die? What, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as it's going to leave the place better than I found it. How about this? Well, all religions go to the same place. If you ask the question, these are the answers that they come up with. If they don't even believe in God, if they're not even thinking about God. Why? Because it is empty. It's futile. I remember when we were on this river, in the Ganges River, and in the Ganges, they believed that if you were cremated on the banks of the river, and they take your ashes and they pour it in this river, that your sins will be forgiven. That's what they believe. The Hindus believe that. And as I was talking to the tour guide, we were sharing the gospel with him. It was three of us sharing the gospel with him. And he would not have it. He would not have it. Right? And as I saw folks pouring their ashes, all of their trust and all of their hope was in this filthy river with body parts of some unburned corpses sometimes in this hot Indian sun right, floating by. With no hope. Futile. I remember I was, in, I was teaching at a seminary. And we had this group of ladies come. And we had the cabins in the back. We had this huge banyan tree. Beautiful. Big. The kids used to climb it. We used to watch for snakes just so they wouldn't get bit. But there was this huge, beautiful banyan tree. And these poor women would come carrying water. And they would come with some food and they would say, can we please worship the banyan tree? And I just thought, there's no life. They're lost. But you know what? That happens here too. I know this guy from Carlsbad. Pretty close, this other guy. And as I was talking to him, and as he was talking, I remember our conversation. He says he didn't want anything to do with God. He's an atheist. Futile. <coughs> Empty. Just like the women worshiping a banyan tree. But here, in California. Why? First, man doesn't have, does not have the ability to follow Christ in himself. He does not have the ability to follow Christ in himself. He cannot pick up his own bootstraps. He cannot convert himself, right? First, we, why? Because he lacks spiritual discernment. Notice there it says, being darkened in their understanding. The word there for understanding means disposition or how they view the world. What happens is, even if man has uh, glimpses of the truth, okay, we have our conscience and we have creation. Okay? Creation gives us a little bit, a snapshot of who God is. His eternal power, says Romans, his divine nature has been clearly seen through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. So what the Bible tells us is that even creation, even in Psalm chapter 19, tells us something about God, something about his wonder, something about his majesty, something about his intelligent design and his goodness. He gives us food to eat, right? Then we have our conscience as well, right? Mankind has his conscience, which can be changed back and forth. And what happens is they they have a strong, and if you watch the news, just watch the news and watch what get, people get angry about. They have a strong sense of what's right and wrong in their own eyes, but it's distorted. It's not according to scriptures. They're battling fights, and they think it's so right, when biblically it's so wrong. So they have Half-truths which are distorted because they're darkened in their <coughs> understanding. 
Secondly, he lacks spiritual discernment under he does not have the ability to follow Christ. Secondly is he lacks spiritual vitality. He lacks spiritual vitality. It says here he's excluded. Look at the text. Excluded from the life of God. And we know this from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to, if you want to turn there. Mankind apart from Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, in plain letters says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, we were dead. Apart from Christ, the world is dead to him. They have no spiritual life. They can't even sense who he is. We know that the life is in Christ. We remember that even in John 17, 3, this is the eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. And what God is saying here is, those who don't have the Son don't have vitality. Don't have the sensibility. Don't have the understanding. He keeps going deeper. He doesn't stop there. Notice man does not have the ability to follow Christ in himself because he lacks spiritual discernment, because he lacks spiritual vitality, but also because he lacks spiritual knowledge, because he lacks spiritual knowledge. Look at there. Because of the ignorance that is in them, they are devoid of true spiritual knowledge. See, Paul is not backing up. You ever notice? You, you feel like there's this, he's just driving this train of condemnation, right? He just keeps going, keeps going. And he says, you should not live like this. And what he says is, part of the reason why man is futile in his mind is because he lacks spiritual knowledge. He is ignorant. He doesn't know what truth is. He can't sort. He can't pick what truth is. Corinthians says that he does, that he can't even understand. Can't even appraise it rightly. Psalm 14 says this, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. They can't think clearly. I remember, um, I thought I was just saying something that was matter of fact. And it dawned on how fallen mankind is apart from Christ and how fallen I was apart from Christ. In fact, it defies even simple logic. One time I was, uh, when I was in college, I was taking this religious studies class, which attacked Christ. They attacked Christ. His exclusivity his personhood, his uniqueness, his beauty, attacked Christ. Okay. And so I just said something very simple, and the class got upset. Imagine 40 people shouting at me. All I said was this. This is all I said. If one person believes there is only one God, and another person believes there are many gods, they can't both be right. That seems to me, I'm not even preaching the gospel. That just seems logical. They can't, that it's just a rule of mutual exclusivity. And all of a sudden this girl said, no, you can't say that. Blasting me. I'm like, whoa, what is going on? Okay, okay. Maybe I said it wrong. So I said it again. <laughs> Thinking my repetition would clarify it all, and they would all agree with me. I said, you know, all I said was this, that one person who believes that there is one God and another person who believes there are many gods cannot both be right. Then the class gets up. The professor gets up. They start saying, you can't say that. How dare you? And I was just talking about simple logic. What happens? Why? Because when it comes, they know where I was going. 
they knew where I was going, that there was spiritual truth, spiritual absolute truth. I was just going to lead them on, and they would not let me. Why? Even though logic would dictate it, even though it makes perfect common sense, their hearts are hostile towards God, and they want nothing to do with Him. They want nothing to do with Christ. And if Christ were going to come back again, they would crucify Him again. This is an impossible work you're called to do. To share the gospel to men's minds who are futile. To share the gospel who Ephesians says are dead in their sins. This is why we have to pray. Or else it will be utterly fruitless. Do you understand? We have to be on our faces. But going back to the point of the sermon. What's the point of the sermon? Don't live like this. You can have a tendency to live like this. You know how you live like this? Also, when you give up hope. Oh, God. Here, here's, here's a way you're living like in the futility of your mind. Something bad happens and you say, well, God is not for me. I must, you know, I might as well just give up because God just, you know, he has something against me. Now, he loves other people. He loves like Nelson and Cyril, but he doesn't love me. Because bad things always happen to me. You know how you're living like? You're living like an unbeliever. You're living in the futility of your mind. When God has said, I love you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Isn't that true? You're living like an unbeliever. Don't get caught like that, brothers and sisters. Don't get caught like that. He says here also, man does not have the ability, and I need to kind of rush, but because he lacks the spiritual affections. Notice he says because of the hardness of their heart. The word there for hardness, you could translate it to obstinance, not abstinence, obstinance or stubbornness. You're hard. We could tell you, we could show you many verses. Romans 8 is a good one. You're hard. The mind is set on the flesh, is hostile toward God. It hates God. You can translate it. The mind hates God apart from Christ. Okay. Because the heart is not there. So this is, what, this is what happens, brothers and sisters. As you're sharing with your friends, as you're sharing with your family, you can give them all the facts you want. You could even break it down into the metaphysical reasons of why God created the universe. You can have all of your apologetics set up, but until God works on that person's heart, it's going to be like water off a duck's back, bouncing off. Why? The supernatural act of God must be to melt that heart. When that heart is melted, it is ready for the gospel. But that comes simply by the work of God. And he uses men and women and children like you and me battling and fighting this war through prayer, love, kindness, graciousness. That's how we fight. Amazing, isn't it? Don't live like this. Don't allow yourself. Also, why is man futile? Because man does not have the will to follow Christ in himself. So first, man doesn't have the ability. He is darkened in understanding. It is more than simply just a lack of facts. It is a spiritual twisted condition. And I can tell you that's how I was. The way I conceived about the world, the way I thought, it had nothing to do with Christ and his authority. Secondly, man does not have the will to follow Christ in himself. Notice it says they have given themselves to sensuality. There, as an act of the will, the word, as an act of the will, okay, they have their own lusts, their own strong desires for greed, for power, for sex, for recognition, for pride, for, uh, for uh, relationships, for their own, for being well thought of, all of these things. Okay. What happens is they give themselves, it is an act of the will, 
that says, I will allow myself to be ruled by, I will allow myself to be ruled by this desire, this hunger. Then he says, you've given themselves to sensuality. How do you know? He feels nothing for God, having become callous. Having become callous. Secondly, he feels everything for sin, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But let me continue on to our second section. It's a pretty sad section, isn't it? The first one. But God says that was you before. That's not you now. Amen. Amen. I was lost. Were you lost? Were you lost? I was lost. And so he says, leave your old ruined life. Don't go back. And secondly, now live your new redeemed life. Live your new redeemed life and Real briefly, notice he says here in verses 20 to 24. Let me just read that so we can get the flow. But notice he turns and he pivots. You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as Christ is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. First, verse 20, live your renewed life. There are certain aspects that tell us how to live this. First, it is personal. Okay, It is personal. Look at verses 20 to 21. Look very, very carefully at how the Holy Spirit crafted these words for you to read. He says, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. Well, people will say, well, see, they heard Jesus. You know what? You would be wrong. Why? Because this is the church in Ephesus. They never heard Jesus actually speak. Are you following me? Now, Paul says this. Look at the words. He says, you did not learn principles about Jesus this way. No, he didn't say that. You did not learn ways of living. You did not learn morals. He didn't say any of this. And this is where we got to rest, brothers and sisters. We got to kind of slow down here because this is the heart right here. When someone comes to Christ, they don't receive principles. They don't receive morals. They don't even just receive commandments. When someone comes to Christ, preeminent, the dominating factor in that person's life is, I receive a person. I receive Christ. And so now, what Paul is appealing to is that when you came to Christ, brothers and sisters... Because he knows the motivation for righteousness is not going to be how many lists of rules you can keep. The motivation for righteousness is what? That Christ himself is in you. Amen? And so he says this. You did not learn Christ in this way. What does that mean? I have a personal relationship with God. And when I sin, I bring him pain. And when I follow him, he smiles. I know I'm forgiven. I know that I could never be cast into hell. I know that he loves me. But we are talking about now part of Christianity where it's time to get up and go and to obey him. And Paul says this, just like David said. He is stressing the very personhood of Jesus Christ. In in essence, he's saying this, okay? When you sin, you offend him. See, sometimes we just kind of of take the heat off of ourselves. 
oh, I could kind of linger here. I could still look at this stuff, or I could still do this stuff. The, re the way you kind of remove yourself is you say, well, you know, uh, I broke that sin. I broke that sin. I'm going to ask for forgiveness for that sin because I broke that law. See how we do it. We divorce ourselves, and we simply create this legal definition and this legal relationship we have with God. God, I broke that sin, your law. I ask for forgiveness for that law. Please forgive me in Christ. And that's how we remove the heat. And that's how we remove the conviction. But Paul doesn't say it that way. Why? Because he wants you to feel it. He wants you to sense it. What? That when you sin, you sin against Christ. And when you sin and no one is looking, you're sinning against Christ. And even as I say these words, it's piercing my own heart. David said this. Against thee, Thee only have I sinned. And so what Paul is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit is he is bringing back the personal nature of Christ that we offended a high and holy being. And now, when you got saved, you should know better. You should know better. And when you sin, you dishonor Christ. But when you put on this new life, you give him glory and you give him praise. Oh, brothers and sisters, you're not just sinning against the law. You're sinning against him. But praise God, he forgives you. And now you could walk in newness of life. Now let's continue. So it's personal. Second, it is doctrinal. Verse 21, just as truth as in Jesus we remember that even in context, right, that they would have, he gave pastors and evangelists, apostles and prophets for what? So that you have the unity of what? Faith. And so it is not divorced of our relationship with God and is also not divorced with sound doctrine. It has to be. The Christian life does not check your brain at the door. You come in here, oh, we're not thinking anymore. We're not studying anymore. We're not contemplating the truths that are in the scripture. You have to dwell upon this. You can't grow. You can't live this Christian life unless the truth is in you, unless the truth is flooding in you, unless you're exposing yourself to preaching and teaching, good preaching and teaching, and good books. This is why we always want to push books on you guys. If you feel like we're pushing books, yes, we are. Why? Because we know we're battling against the lies of this world. And so, it's doctrinal. So that you could become sharper in your discernment of what is wrong, what is right. It is, verses 22 to 24, transformational. It's transformational. Notice there's a departure from the old life, what we talked about. You lay aside the old self in reference to your former manner of life we all had a former manner of life you know that we all did even if you grew up in a christian home if you didn't grow up in a, grow up in a christian home sometimes when i was uh overseas i knew they did not understand the gospel when they said this one thing i asked how did you become a christian and they say i was born a christian i know you don't understand the gospel I already know. So then I got to back up and explain what the gospel is. Because the Bible says in sin, what? I was conceived. Right? The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So you don't understand the gospel because no one is born a Christian. Right? No one is born a Christian. So we all have a former life. Now, some of us may have a drastic former life. Some of us may have outwardly not so drastic because you grew up in a Christian home and you had godly parents who loved you and showed you Christ. But even in there, there is a time. You may not know the date. You may not know the hour. But there was a time when you met Christ and your bitterness against your parents disappeared. 
and your rebellion against their authority disappeared. And you know this too, if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you know this where you finally bent the knee. There was a former life, brothers and sisters. We all had a former life. 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Do, you, do not be deceived. And then he gives this list, homosexuals, idolaters, and he just goes on the line, will not, receive the, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and such what? Were some of you. That's how you used to be. That's not how you are anymore. Brothers and sisters, that's not you anymore. Don't live like that anymore. You are a new creature in him. Amen. You are a son and daughter of Christ. Amen? Amen. So now, there is this pursuit of a new life that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You could go to Romans 12. We know that verse. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness of truth. Let me just, let me just pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus walks with me. Thank you that he has forgiveness on a sinner like me and for the church that we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to live in that direction. Oh, help us not to have minds of unbelief. Help us not to live in futility, God, but to live righteously and to desire you. Help us to be actively putting on this new life and pursuing you. Forgive us and give us hope again for tomorrow to get up and to serve you and to honor you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your church. Thank you for encouragement of friends. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word that gives us clarity on how to think and how to live. We praise you. Arise our spirits again. We confess in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen.